he kind of had a foot in in two different worlds. One was a more religious, rural, shtetl-like community that he grew up in, and the other was the world of Warsaw that was a more sophisticated, contemporary city. He, he lived a life that was an artistic one and a worldly one and a well-traveled one. He lived well beyond the walls of a, you know, the imaginary walls of a shtetl. He drew and painted what he knew well, which was the Jewish community, but in images of himself and self-portraits, at least the ones that we have, he, he painted himself usually in a coat and tie, a very assimilated look, which is not generally the people who appear in his paintings. So I think that he's kind of struggled his whole life between the things he felt compelled to document and the way he lived his own life. He once told my grandpa George that if God didn't want him to paint, then he wouldn't have given him such talent. So he did believe that what he had to say in images was important. And he he just felt compelled to do so, and and so he did. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was author and filmmaker Elizabeth Reinecke discussing her great-grandfather, Moshe Reinecke, an artist who left behind a legacy of work that Elizabeth has spent over two decades trying to locate. In the following conversation, she shares about the challenges and the joys of that journey and how she sees her work as bringing historical justice to her great-grandfather, who was one of many sent to the Warsaw Ghetto and then is believed to have perished at Majdanek concentration camp. Elizabeth Reinecke, Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. I could not put your book down. I've seen your documentary twice, and I highly recommend both. Thank you for having me. I Twice. Wow. I'm excited to be here. Nice. What are your thoughts uh, on how the political climate in your great-grandfather's lifetime impacted his art? Um, well, the pieces that we have are mostly from the 20s and 30s, and that is the interwar year period. So in other words, between the First and the Second World War. Um, we have a few pieces that were done at the start of the Second World War, but um, if he did do more work um, inside the Warsaw Ghetto, we don't, I, if it survives, we don't have that. Um, but I, <laughs> excuse me. I think certainly he was, um, you know, documenting the world around him. I, I have said in the past that he is sort of like an ethnographer. Um, in some ways, he is like Roman Vishniak, um, who was a photographer whose works of Jews um, from that time period is super well known. And in fact, there I did a blog post years ago comparing their two works because there are several photographs, Vishniak photographs of my great-grandfather's paintings, and it looks like they're standing at the same corner looking at the exact same image. Um, and oftentimes, my great-grandfather's painting is an earlier date. And so I've always found that kind of fascinating. And actually, um, for a long time, like when I was a kid, I thought that my great-grandfather had made up these scenes. I didn't know that he was really painting 
from real life. And when I learned about Vishniak's photograph, it was so um, confirming, like, okay, that was actually a place and these were actual people. And he was really documenting that world. Um, and that to me was, was incredibly powerful. And the few paintings that were surviving from his time in the ghetto, is it three of them, I think? Right. I think it's three. Um, yeah. So we think, you know, we don't have exact dates. There's one that is an early image um, of uh, men. It looks like they're digging um, a trench to kind of stop the advance of of the the German invasion. Um, and then there's one, uh, a refugee scene. It's got the painting that we donated to Yad Vashem. And then there's another of um, uh, some people in a shelter. And what's interesting about all of those pieces is his style is definitely familiar, but they're very, um, they look like, I mean, they're watercolors, so they're not sketches, but they look like just really quick studies um, and that he, you know, maybe he thought later he would go back and, and paint something more detailed. Um, of course, it's, it's hard to know. But it is interesting that, um, and Yehudit Shandar says this in the film, she's from Yad Vashem, that um, art historians study history, but that historians don't often study art. And that the artist really makes a unique contribution to understanding a perspective on history. And I do think that my great grandfather's paintings, the ones from the interwar year period are particularly valuable for that because when we think of Eastern European Jews, we often um, think about all of those that perished in the Holocaust. And of course we, we should, and, 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 you know, more people um, who don't know that history should know it. Um, but there also was a, a bright moment in history where there were these, great communities and the, you know, the, the Polish Jews were really gifted artisans and craftspeople. And, um, and my great grandfather's paintings document that as well as the religious moments um, of those years. And so that to me is powerful because, you know, nobody knew that Hitler was going to come to power and that, um, that Jews would be murdered. And so he, you know, it's this time capsule um, without without that history that follows. And I think that that also is important to, to see and know. And how were the, the few paintings that you were referencing before that were from that, um, that just before or during the ghetto era, how were those um, preserved and, and passed on to you? That is an excellent question to which I really don't have an answer. Um, I My guess is that those were done in the early days. So the Germans invaded, War, invaded Poland September 1st, 1939. The Warsaw Ghetto... The con I forget the exact dates, but the construction wasn't until 1940 or so. Um, so he could have done those works before he went into the ghetto. Um, and then uh, when he divided his collection up, because I, these are dates that are, they're a little smudgy in my head. I don't know precisely the timeline, um, just would have been included in those bundles. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I, I don't, my guess is that they were not done in the ghetto and smuggled out, that they were done before. Yeah, that's what I was very curious about, if it was a matter of smuggling, because I, and, and also I, I'd read about uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto, certain people had tried to create um, sort of time capsules of their own hidden writings or art and and left it for, to be found later. And I, I, I was always very intrigued by that with whether your grandfather had had anything um, like that with his work. Right. So the, the most famous of that is, is the Emanuel Ringelblum um, archive, and those were buried in these um, metal milk um, containers, um, and they have found all but one. And the last one they think is buried under, I think, one of the embassies. I forget which embassy. Um, and uh, But none of the pieces recovered from those archive um, included my great-grandfather's work. So, you know, there were a lot of people in the ghetto. I don't know um, that he you know, was involved in, in their work at all or knew them or, um, I mean, they tend to, yeah, it's just impossible to know. Um, and it is certainly theoretically possible that he, he did paint or draw inside the ghetto and that either those things were destroyed or we just don't know where they are. Um, but I, I don't know for sure. One of the many compelling facts about your family story is your great-grandfather's choice to stay with his people in the ghetto and not escape when the opportunity presented itself. And I was curious uh, about your thoughts on that choice, whether it had evolved over the course of the project. I think I've always struggled with trying to understand that. Um, So... Yeah, just to clarify, the best I understand it, my great-grandfather, Moshe, and his wife, Perla, willingly went into the Warsaw Ghetto, and that their son, my grandpa, George, um, still had telephone contact with them. There were telephones that were working inside the ghetto and said that he could get them out. Um, And, of course, there are Jews that did get out from various different ways. Um, And... And Moshe chose to stay, um, and Perla chose to leave, which, of course, is a whole question in and of itself. Like, how does a couple decide that, you know, they're going to basically split up, um, and and what's compelling, and what are the arguments, and, you know, that's a whole thing that I'll probably never understand. Um my guess for Moshe's reasoning to stay was um, partly because he he'd always painted the Jewish community, and and again, if in the position of sort of an ethnographer, maybe he felt like this he was important for him to document it. Um, I am certain at that point that nobody thought that they were going to be gassed. I mean, I, I, he probably thought this is war and this is bad and I can paint and I'm, I'm talented and I'm, you know, I can do something useful and, you know, who knows what his thinking was. Um, but I, I do think he, he had maybe a sense of guilt that he, he lived a more assimilated life. Um, you know, if you, if you were from a shtetl and you only spoke Yiddish, 
your chances of surviving were really limited. Um, people like my my grandfather and his father, you know, they were um, well educated. They spoke Polish really well. They spoke German. Um, they had access to money and resources. Um, I think they felt privileged, and I think my great grandfather probably had some guilt that, like, this is my community. How can I? Um, abandon them because I have access to these resources. I don't, you know, I don't know. It's something I'll never really understand. From the photos of paintings of his I've seen, although many are missing, it doesn't seem that he ever struggled with finding his voice as an artist. What are your thoughts on that? Boy, you know, that's a hard one to answer because um, he was born, we're not precisely sure, but like 1881, 1885, somewhere right in there. Um, And the works that we have are mostly from the 1920s and 1930s. So there's this really big gap in his early artistic career that we we just don't know a lot about. And so... um, you know, my guess is like most artists, he probably struggled um, to to find the things that were most compelling to him and to find a style that he felt um, represented the way he saw the world and felt comfortable portraying the world. But, but I don't really know what those struggles might have been. Yeah. And of the, is it, I think six to 10 bundles you guys think uh, were hidden? You guys have the the majority perhaps of one bundle is that right right so we believe according to my grandpa george there were close to 800 works before the second world war broke out and um that of course is quite prolific and i don't know you know if that's 748 or 832 like i you know i just have no idea we don't have a list that um, identifies each painting by name and description or photograph. I don't have anything like that. Um, but we do know that in the early days of the Second World War, my my uh, great-grandfather became concerned about his collection, um, and that would include finished paintings and sketches, and um, he, he'd made some sculptures, and he divided those into packages, which he... Um, he hid with friends and acquaintances in and around the city of Warsaw, and we don't know exactly where all those were, although um, his wife and children knew where they were. And after the war, he he perished in the Holocaust, and after the war, his surviving widow found, um, recovered just um, a small percentage of that original body of work. And that bundle that was um, recovered um, my family has today, and that has about 120 pieces. Some of them are torn and ripped and damaged, but um, but that's what we've got. We've also got um, uh, a brooch, like a, a woman's cameo, and um, yeah, we are the largest known collector. So there is the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw has 52 pieces, and then there are private collectors in. Uh, Canada, Israel, the U.S., and France that have pieces, and um, but but not nearly as many. And the the Jewish Historical Institute, just since you brought them up, 
the the collection of works that they have, at least from the one that's referenced that I um, that stands out to me from your documentary, almost certainly was found post-war. Would you agree with that? Is that what you right. have gathered? So it is a little, actually, I think it's more than a little unclear of what the Jewish, sorry, the Jewish Historical Institute, how they obtained the paintings that they have. So they do have these um, cards that say the name of the person that either um, donated it to the museum or who they bought it from. And the Jewish Historical Institute, I forget the name of it exactly, right um, at the end of the war, but it was an earlier organization. And so that organization started to acquire um, Jewish um, things, you know, uh, candelabras and menorahs and um, basically Jewish ephemera as well as artwork. And so there's very little known about who those people were and how they acquired my great-grandfather's paintings, which, of course, are um, provenance questions and history questions of ownership. And, um, you know, if if you want to talk about that and and the fact that I um, am not a claimant, um, that is part of that larger story because we we just don't know. um, There are a lot of blanks in in that provenance history. Yeah, and I uh, I certainly do want to to have you address that because uh, the restitution issue is so thoroughly covered in your book. I think you give such a great overview of the issues that arise in restitution cases, as well as a nice brief history of the case law that's out there that shows how difficult these uh, cases can be. And and I was curious how your search has informed your definition of justice, because that seems to come up a lot about the different um, types of justice you could get, symbolic justice, historical justice. Absolutely. And it was interesting. I, I heard your interview with Simon Goodman, and one of the things he talked about was how people come up to him after presentations to tell their own family stories and and to say why, you know, they did or did not pursue legal cases. And, um, you know, I'm sort of in a, in a middle ground really, because to be a, excuse me, to be a successful claimant, you need a number of things. The burden is on the family um, and you have to prove that it is yours. So you have to either have, um, documents that show that the painting was sold to you, or you have to have inventory that doesn't just say 12 Moshe Reinecke paintings. It would have to say the size and the medium and what the subject matter was and maybe how many figures appear in the painting and the colors that are used. I mean, you have to be very detailed. Um, And the fact that my great-grandfather was the artist rather than a art collector makes my situation much more complicated because artists um, exhibit paintings, they sell paintings, they give them away, they barter them with friends and family. Um, And so 
it is, I, I have no documentation to prove what he had at the outbreak of war. And so um, the people that have his work, um, if they know more, they're not really telling me, but my guess is mostly people don't really know the whole backstories. And so um, in both the book and the film, Carla Chapeau, who um, is both um, a law professor and a researcher of um, stolen and looted Holocaust art music-related things, so musical instruments and sheet music. Um, She helped me understand that while there might not always be legal justice, there might be historical justice. And I have clung really tightly to that concept because it is rewarding. It means that Every time that the film screens or somebody else reads the book or I get to do a podcast interview, that the people that learn about the story and my great-grandfather's art through those events, um, there's a little bit more historical justice for me because that means more people are learning my great-grandfather's story. And so I have tried to let go of the legal element of it in the hopes that um, that if people who have his paintings understand that I won't fight with them and I won't sue them for the return of the painting, that they would come forward and say, I have your painting. And knowing more about what's out there helps me to better understand my great-grandfather's body of work. And that I think is the reward. And so I, that's the, the hope that um, is meaningful to me. Absolutely. And I, I'm going to be following your story to see as the years go by, I, I'm excited to see if any other people come forward with works of your great grandfathers. <laughs> Absolutely. Me too. <laughs> I'm hoping because um, that, you know, each time a new painting um, is discovered and revealed, it's, uh, it's really eye-opening. So, for example, um, there's some paintings that the Jewish Historical Institute has that seem like, for lack of a better word, kind of sister paintings to pieces that we have. And so the question is, you know, which did he paint first? Because, like, the, the, the scenes will be super similar, but he's you know, in one, there are five characters, and then in the other, there are three. And in one, you know, they're playing um, uh, the harmonica, and in the other, he's not, or whatever the instrument is. And so the question is, like, why? Like, what about the composition changed? Were there different people on the street corner on a different day? Or did he suddenly decide he didn't really like the way one looked and one added some dimension to it? And and so that we'll never have answers to those questions, but they are super interesting in trying to understand what he was thinking and seeing and doing. And so that is exciting. For the paintings that were damaged, and there are several that you've included in the book, uh, I was kind of struck by that because to me, it's almost the paintings have almost taken on another significance showing um, uh, sort of taking on a new meaning that they not only have this um, 
generation that your grandfather was memorializing with his art, but also the whole war experience is now on the face of the painting too. Have you um, kind of looked at it with new eyes for those paintings that have those kinds of marks? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, the artwork speaks in different ways to us. Um, You know, there's sort of just a visceral thing, like, do we like something? But they, there, there's a lot more going on in a painting that um, we have to really look out for. And, and those scratches and tears and crumples of my great grandfather's paintings speak volumes to the fact that they too are survivors and they have a story to tell. And that's a part of the reason that I wrote the book and made the movie was because, um, you know, I, I am not a survivor. I cannot bear witness to that history and and the survivors are dying, but the art, um, somebody needed to give voice to the art and I was in a unique position to be able to do that. And I wanted to try to um, make sure its history was known and understood and not forgotten. At at what point did you decide that a book and a film would be uh, (laughs) the way for you to memorialize this journey? So my, Sons were in preschool, one's now in college, so you can tell this was a long time ago, Um, were in preschool with a guy who's a documentary filmmaker, and I've always loved documentary films, and um, I've always felt like the story was really a visual one. I, even when I finally decided to write a book, um, I, I, one of my things was there, there has to be a color insert with some of the paintings because this, you can't tell the story without the art. Um, so I actually, the film, um, I started the film first. We shot the first footage in 2008, um, and the film didn't premiere until 2018. So it took me 10 years to make the film. And I thought it would be super easy to get money and grants, and it was not. And so I set the film aside and thought, well, forget it. I'll just write a book. And um, then when I got the book deal with Penguin Random House, that helped give me a little more credibility. And so I got some more money for the film. And um, it just was sort of a race towards the finish line, and the book crossed first. So that's why the book the book came out in 2016 and the film in 2018 would you have any advice for anyone who is in sort of the same situation where they have a family history um of lost art especially from this nazi era um in their journey whether it's um the type of research that you've done or how you've approached it have you had any advice that you've given in the past or thoughts you've had on how you would make it easier on yourself going forward if you were doing it in with the knowledge you have now well i think my biggest um advantage was that I am persistent and I don't give up easily. So 
I do think it is a long game and you, um, you can't expect anything to be resolved in a matter of weeks or months or even years. Uh, if you, if you read, um, any of these histories, family histories that are out there about Holocaust era looted art, you will understand that it takes a very long time and that you may not prevail. So I think that, um, all of these stories are important and I try to connect to the different families that have, um, that are, are searching for lost and looted art because I, you know, personally, I find their stories fascinating and there's sort of a camaraderie between us. Um, and I think that that's important to not, you know, build a community and not feel alone. Um, but also to be realistic, you know, um, sometimes, you know, you need to listen to what the lawyers are telling you and you need to look at the bank account and think about, you know, how much it's going to cost and, and whether or not that's, you know, feasible for you. So, um, I I believe in persistence and, and a sense of practicality. Are there any stories, uh, books, or films that you've been reading over the years that you'd recommend? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but so many. It's, it's hard to just name them in a podcast. I mean, a lot of them appear in the um, the back of my book. I have um, I have sort of two bibliographies. One is um, sources that are directly related to my family's story. And then the other is a selected bibliography. And there are a lot of wonderful books in there that are both um, like, you know, history in general, um, uh, um, uh, Lynn Nichols' book, of course. Um, uh, and then, of course, the the movie that was based on that, which is um, The Rape of Europa. Um, but then there are so many personal family stories and Holocaust histories that helped to shape my journey and understanding. Um, one book in there that I do think is kind of particularly interesting um, is it's a small, skinny book, and I'm pulling it off my shelf right now. And it is called Landscape with Smokestacks. And it actually is related to the Simon Goodman story. Um, and it is the attorney on the other side. Um, and the subtitle is The Case of the Allegedly Plundered Degas. And what I found fascinating about it is that it is a legal perspective and it is the opposing side um, from the Goodman family. And so it does. I think it's important to know what you're getting yourself into and, you know, because museums mostly do not just roll over and say, Oh yes, it's yours. Uh-huh. Here you go. <laughs> That's not going to happen. So um, to have, to be educated and have an awareness of what you're up against is important. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, I recently heard a Q and a you did where you mentioned that you were involved in a provenance research class. Is that right? I um so I don't know a lot about um how what happens in the class um but I connected with the two women who were both for a while at the Getty um but they taught the class through I believe it's uh Johns Hopkins on it's um an online class I mean it was online before COVID-19 because the students are around the country I think it's part of a it might be part of a master's program 
Um, and so they, as part of the, the class assignment, they were to, um, the, the people teaching the class connected the students with different, um, authors and researchers about that had issues to do with provenance research. And so I don't know who all the other, um, authors that they connected with, but I have um, now twice answered students' questions. And so that's been, um, it's always fun to connect both with readers, but also, you know, with people who are studying about provenance research, because I think that, I mean, if I was in a museum and staring at a painting and just sort of feeling a disconnect from, you know, from its history to actually know how a family was influenced and impacted by by all the different things that have happened to the painting, that to me would be much more fascinating. So I, that's why I'm happy to to talk to the students and answer their questions. I was curious what kind of issues have popped up with um, the the provenance research you've had or the questions that have been raised to you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that a lot of it came really early on, and I, I talked a little bit about that already, but in terms of, I mean, when I first started tackling this project, it was in the early days of the internet, um, which is sort of an interesting time period in and of itself, but it meant that we started putting things online and other people started putting things online. And I started reading uh, about other people who were, um, you know, fighting for their paintings. I can't remember the early stories that were in the paper, but at that juncture, um, but this was far before the Monuments Men film or Women in Gold or um, even, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on this other film, but um, there was this sense early on of like real anger, like, you know, I was finally figuring out how my dad and his parents survived the war because my, they were, they, they're the kind of survivors that didn't really talk about it. Um, and so I didn't really understand their story. And then I started to realize that other paintings had survived. And then I was indignant. I was like, these belong to us. They're our family. Like, how could other people have them? This is so wrong. And then I was really angry because, um, the Jewish Historical Institute in Poland, I felt like they were stonewalling me and not answering questions. Um, and I think that's a complicated sort of language barrier, cultural differences, um, time zone differences. I mean, there are all sorts of things going on there. Um, and so, but over time, I just started to realize that you know, it was, it was as Carla Chapro kind of taught me that you, you might not be able to get that legal justice. Um, and instead maybe there, there is a, some other way to, to not feel like you, you know, history has forgotten your great grandfather, like how great to rescue his legacy, um, in sort of a public manner than to spend a, ton of money on lawyers and provenance researchers and and maybe get a painting back because every painting would have to be a, an individual case the 52 at the Jewish Historical Institute you can't just say all 52 are ours you would have had to deal with each one 
And um, as far as track records for restitution issues, Poland is not at the top of the list. Um, They have not wanted to deal with those issues. They have wanted their own stolen works back in Poland, um, but they haven't, they haven't wanted to address these issues. And so um, letting go of that just, you know, it was like one less thing to stress about, but also just it helped me carve out another path. And so, um, and I think that ultimately it, it makes for a different story um, within issues of Holocaust era art restitution. And I think that's important because I think that so the other people who are looking for their families, um, you know, whether it's stolen jewelry or furniture or homes or artwork, um, not everybody is going to get their stuff back. And so how else can we find ways to heal and process? And um, I'm, I'm, glad that I'm able to put out our own story and and maybe that will give other people some solace um, in their own approach to their own family story. There will be links in the show notes to view Moshe Ronicki's work and to learn more about Chasing Portraits, the book and documentary by Elizabeth Reinecke. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. You can also email your comments to Stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.